Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The way I would see it now, there's, there's three main forces driving football. One is the politics of the Gulf. A second is a very, this very Western form of capitalism predominantly coming from the from US interests and a third is football's inability to regulate itself football is is cannibalizing all other sports but it's also cannibalizing itself Hello and welcome to Behind the Lines with me, Arthur Snell. We're living in an age of the self-confident autocrat. China is rising, President Erdogan coasted to a managed re-election, and in the Gulf, the Arab monarchies are riding high on oil prices boosted by Putin's war in Ukraine. And what do the autocrats do with their money? They use it to buy influence. And one of the ways they can do this is through football the most popular sport on the planet. Back in 2003, Roman Abramovich, the now sanctioned Russian billionaire, bought Chelsea Football Club, setting into motion a process of flooding the English game with colossal amounts of money. As we know now, and as many suspected for years, Abramovich owed his wealth directly to President Putin. So the money that infused English football from this point was effectively looted from the coffers of the Russian state. Russia would not be alone in seeking to use football to burnish its image. In 2008, Abu Dhabi bought Manchester City and Qatar bought Paris Saint-Germain three years later. In both of these cases, the small Gulf Emirates sought to use football to increase their global reputation and influence. This process appears to have continued with Qatar's hosting of the World Cup and the purchase in 2021 by Saudi Arabia of Newcastle United, a purchase undertaken by that country's public investment fund. As part of the deal, the Premier League appeared to have been given assurances that the public investment fund was separate to the Saudi state, which is patently untrue. 
So to discuss the geopolitical and sporting implications of these changes to world football, I was honoured to be joined by Miguel Delaney, who's the chief football writer at The Independent, and he's been researching and writing about the geopolitics of football for several years. Miguel, welcome to Behind the Lines. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the pleasure to be on. Uh, so, uh, in this episode, we're talking about football and the ways that football are being transformed by the new geopolitical realities. And I suppose a starting place for this story is uh, Roman Abramovich's purchase of Chelsea in 2003. And of course, that's something that had to be reversed when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. What, what was the significance of, of that moment in, in English football? Well, I think there are, there are two major significances. First of all, on a, on a very basic uh, economic level, in terms of kind of how the sport actually works and structure, the, the amount of money that Abramovich was willing to spend, it, ju it just changed the entire dynamic of the sport. It was something we, we'd never seen before. And actually, it's quite interesting, given what we're going to talk about, it's probably, it was probably even to a level relative to its time that we haven't seen, say, from Abu Dhabi with Manchester City or, or Qatar with Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, maybe there's one summer that was maybe com comparable, which is 2017. Um, but really, the biggest significance, uh, and it's connected to that uh, willingness to spend, was that it just um, it moved certainly English football and gradually European football into a new era of ownership. I mean, if you if you look at who owned Premier League clubs at the time, it was predominantly English or British. This was the first. Um, I mean, um, uh, Mohamed Al Fayed owned Fulham. Uh, but obviously, I mean, for, for so long, he wanted a British passport. Yeah, um, he definitely wanted you to think he was British, even yeah, if the government didn't agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, 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 this was really the first of a new model of owner. And I think that reflected something else as well, because I think that, that was at a point where, um, and it's actually, it's, it's interesting and frustrating to look back at it now, given so many of the problems that we see in modern football from erosion of competitive balance, to the political use of clubs, they could really have been addressed at that moment in football history. Because that was a point where the Champions League had expanded. Obviously, kind of the internet was moving into a new era. And I think it was the start of football's... It, it had always been, I suppose, the most popular sport in the, in the world. But it was becoming the truly kind of globe-encompassing sport at that point. Um, and within that, a, a group of clubs, and it was a larger group at that point, they were probably capable of expanding to a, a, a global size or a size of popularity that gave them not, not just kind of potential financial returns, but and, and it's amazing how football has changed in that sense as well, but real social and political capital. And I think that's what was really attractive. That, that, that's what Abramovich signaled. I mean, at the time, when, when Abramovich bought a club, um, there was a lot of mystery about him. Uh, probably a lot of the discussion, um, bar, bar, bar a few figures, was really kind of about how much he was willing to spend. Not too much in terms of motivation. Obviously, we put all this in a different context now after, you know, how after he's been sanctioned and his, um, his proximity to Putin. Uh, but, but, but clearly, even in the most basic terms, there was an element of international profile about it um, for someone who had been very quiet. Uh, and, that, and, and suddenly, through that, and through the waves even he made, it just... Um, it moved football into a new era. And, and it's amazing, I mean, fr from, from that point and from a Premier League that had still been quite um, uh, monocultural in terms of ownership, 
the cascade from there was so quick. I mean, within two years, we had the next um, very significant ownership model, which was the Glazers buying Manchester United to a leverage buyout. And yeah. now we're at a point where all sorts of American kind of and, and different forms of American and very Western capitalism are, are trying to buy football clubs from private equity groups to um, to, to, to say the, Liverpool, the, the owners of Liverpool in FSG. And then, of course, the next stage after that uh, was 2008 and the entrance, the, the, it was the true entrance of, um, of, of Gulf States. Yeah. Uh, some, something that had been building for a while through sponsorship. Emirates was the first. This global expansion of football or this kind of uh, economic and, uh, and social expansion of football coincided with a point where, and it's, it's, it is specifically, I suppose, uh, three Gulf states, or, or maybe, maybe at that point it was only two in, in Qatar and UAE, but they were also considering a post-oil future, and we started to see the formation of all these, you know, grandly titled documents like Vision 2030 and um, and these diversification projects. So these things came together to um, not just, I suppose, move um, <laughs> the world into a different place, but also football. Yeah, absolutely. And and I de we're definitely going to talk a lot more about those Gulf states. But going back to Abramovich, in a way, I think, um, I'm sure you found this, you, you know, being someone in the football world, and I found this being someone in the kind of geopolitical world. For years, people would say privately, oh, Abramovich is is close to Putin, you know, there's the, the sources of his money is, is, is very much thanks to uh, political uh, favours. And for years, no one could say that publicly. And oh, the entire British public were being gaslit effectively. And I think that's a very interesting sort of illustration of the kind of cynicism that sit the, sits at the heart of a lot of this sort of mega money that's gone into football. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it, 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 especially I think when one of the keys to sports washing, I suppose, uh, and I, think, I do think sports washing is actually out of date as a phrase, but one of the keys is kind of buying up Western infrastructure. And I suppose a lot, a lot of people, particularly in human rights, would now say it's not just about buying up infrastructure, but through buying up the infra infrastructure, undermining de democratic processes. And it's interesting, even as I was talking about Abramovich there at the start, I mean, I think it's... I, I, I found myself actually thinking this as I was saying it. I think I'm still conditioned by how difficult it was to talk around Abramovich's politics and his motivations throughout his time. Because, I'm, I mean, just as an example... In, in, in September 2020, because it was Chelsea had spent a lot that summer, and it was the first time they'd done so in years, I made a lot of expectation that Abramovich might actually sell the club. But this yeah. was kind of a signal that he was back, and he was doing what he did before. And I, I, I tried to do a big profile of it. And obviously, a large chunk of that was his politics. Yeah. And, I mean, I suppose we, we were essentially told that there were, there were too many legal concerns. I mean, they, you know, it, it, it came back from the Chelsea side. That, that was at a point as well where he was um, he, he, he was taking action against a lot of newspapers for yeah. any mention of his proximity to Putin. And yeah. then, of course, what happens is, I suppose, um, the, uh, the, the, the invasion happens, he gets sanctioned, and then it was just free reign to write all about it. And, and and it's fascinating because ultimately, well, that also, you know, other people had been sanctioned long before the invasion of Ukraine. So there was no reason uh, that it needed the invasion. But but that was obviously the, the you know, the, the catalyst for these these events. Um, but let, let's talk about Abu Dhabi, because it feels as if um, Abramovich 
clearly we know now and you know we may have known for a while is close to putin but it's not i don't think anyone saw the purchase of chelsea as a sort of a big strategic plan by putin himself but abu dhabi buying manchester city was part of a national plan led by a country um and so in, in that sense that seems like it's a it, it's a different level of involvement of of sort of geopolitics inside football oh completely i mean i think you, with the benefit of, I suppose, of, um, of two decades of perspective, you could maybe argue that what was happening with Putin's Russia was a prototype for this form of sports, right up to hosting a World Cup. And even, I suppose, this only various Russian figures had some proximity to Putin just by buying up institutions in the West. Whereas with, 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 with the Gulf states, with, the, with these specific Gulf states, and with Abu Dhabi in that sense, it's been obviously so much more... Think it's so much more joined up. It's yeah. been it's more more systematic, and then clearly the, the purchase of Manchester City was a, exactly along these lines, buying up a Western institution. Even from what it allowed, in terms of the, the jump from Manchester City to suddenly um, having this construction empire around Manchester and yeah. um, uh, what it's facilitated, um, which, which allowed to that a kind of a proximity to um, to political power. Uh, in, in England, while obviously I think the um, the thinking since then has been very sophisticated, especially as they realised, I think a few months in, uh, or quite early in, really, what man- or the potential that Manchester City offered, and I think that's that's most visible in how um, they they got rid of the the, the initial figure from UAE, uh, who was um, who was the face of the takeover, and replaced him obviously with a very very. Very competent, very accomplished, Khaldun Al Mubarak, who's as we know one of the most influential people in the in the UAE. But yeah. I do wonder whether there was a certain amount of happenstance in the initial takeover, and basically then, but but, but figures like Simon Pierce realised the value in this, and it, and it evolved from there. Uh, but then, as we know, I mean, and I suppose this is crucial context as well. That that takeover happened around the period of the financial crash. And you know, Western countries openly looking for investment. And I mean, I, I, I've heard, as I'm sure you have, of you know, p- questions being asked about whether Gulf states were interested in in, in buying football clubs. And at that point, actually, Qatar say weren't. Yeah. Uh, the World Cup plan was still in, I think, in very. Oh, at that point, in August 2008, it was it was it was going along maybe at a, at a quicker pace. Uh, but it was it was the, the purchase of Manchester City. I think that again. A bit like Abramovich five years beforehand, that changed everything. That opened up, into, and then obviously other states realised. But yeah, I mean, maybe there was an element of happenstance and kind of how uh, Thatcher Sinatra, who again obviously is in a political context of his own, had to sell the club. Uh, but ve- very quickly, if not immediately, uh, Abu Dhabi realised the immense potential of this as a purchase. Yeah. And of course, it was part of a kind of global branding exercise. And, and you mentioned Simon Pierce. you know, there are various individuals who were significant in sort of creating this strategic uh, brand with, uh, you know, other football clubs and not, not as significant, perhaps, but in other parts of the world. So this was part of the UAE projecting itself as as perhaps the most kind of modern and and kind of attractive uh, destination in the Gulf region, but of course, hot on its heels was Qatar, and and they we all know now, of course, of the World Cup. But the other bit of Qatar's major sort of football investment w- was Paris Saint Germain. So, could you say a bit about that? 
I mean, cl- clearly it was connected to the World Cup bid as well um, with, with the way it, it was part of a bigger expansion. Uh, there was that meeting with Sarkozy as well, right just before the World Cup vote. Sarkozy, of course, a, a, Par- a Paris Saint-Germain fan. Um, and yeah, it, it, was, it was the purchase was clearly part of the same expansion plans by, by Qatar. I think one of the most interesting things there is the way um, it feels like, and again, specifically this trio of states who have been at the centre of the, um, I suppose, the, the ever-rotating politics at the, at the core of the Gulf blockade. But initially Abu Dhabi, then Qatar, now belatedly, but now maybe more, more influential than any Saudi Arabia. But they've all followed the same playbook, not just followed it, but updated the playbook at each time um, and, and gone that bit further. And Qatar buying Paris Saint-Germain while also kind of staging the World Cup while also establishing B in sports as this kind of um, really influential broadcasting player, and especially giving the, the central, centrality of broadcasting money, oh, sorry, the centrality of, of broadcasting to football's uh, economic landscape now. Uh, that was an update from, um, from what the, uh, the Abu Dhabi purchase of Manchester City was. Although it's interesting how they've run the club in that, um, and I suppose some of this comes down to what we, what we would think the intention of all this is, and the very... Uh, concept of sports washing, but I'm, I'm, I think the phrase is outdated because the very, the very word washing conjures an image which uh, which is about kind of laundering kind of reputation or something like that. Whereas I think it's gone way beyond that. I don't think the, the states actually particularly care about criticism. It's more the other side of that. It's about normalizing their presence in spite of criticism and normalizing the presence to preserve state structures for the future, which of course means some. Um, long-term economic returns as well, but it is about preserving these states as they are, with all with all their various with all the various criticisms ma- made of them. Um, but it's in Paris Saint Germain, uh, the, um, the or those in charge, the hierarchy put in charge by the by the owners, they went for a much flashier apro- approach than Manchester City. Now, maybe I, I, I've thought about this a lot actually. I do wonder whether may, that made them feel a little bit more kind of. There was more of an element of soap opera and farce about it because it was all about the big stars often failing to perform. Uh, there was this constant kind of, again, soap opera about some of the major players. Whereas what Manchester City did, it was a, a much more sophisticated level. I mean, first of all, it's interesting if you, if you speak to people who worked around the club at that point. First of all, in the takeover, obviously they wanted to become a Champions League club, which meant finishing the top four. So their, their main initial purpose was uh, systematically improving themselves while puncturing holes in their rivals, which is basically signing their best players. So they immediately went for Samir Nasri from Arsenal, say, or they went from players, or those are immediately around from Aston Villa, from Everton. Um, but then it was about the next day, once they, became, once they made themselves a Champions League club and won the title in those very dramatic circumstances uh, with, with Sergio Aguero's last-minute goal, it became about the next stage. And so what do they do? I, I think this is really interesting, I suppose, in terms of how it's sort of... Um, just turned the very uh, structure of football on its head. Well, they, they looked around the game and they essentially looked at what was the kind of, at that point, say, the Facebook or the Apple of football. And that was Barcelona. And so they just went to Barcelona and essentially yeah. went and just tr- in a sequence appointed all their major figures from the Barcelona team that like, dominated Europe from 2008-2011 to eventually to the point where they they finally got 
demand they want. And this is one of the reasons they put in that structure. They got Pep Guardiola and had him in perfect conditions. And for all the criticisms you can have yeah. uh, for, of Manchester City in terms of what the, what the intention of the project is, the other side of that is, and I suppose this is part of kind of, you know, Abu Dhabi's outlook, as well as their capability through so much money. I mean, they're probably the best run football club in the planet in that sense. Um, whereas PSG went in a very different direction. But actually, it's interesting. I mean, I suppose it shows how an old power like Barcelona were completely good in this way. M- Manchester City essentially took all their brains, while um, <laughs> Pia Paris Saint-Germain took all their legs. They took, their, they took Neymar, then they took Messi. Yeah, and it, and in, in a way, that's where I wanted to go next, because, of course, um, you know, you mentioned Barcelona. There was a time when uh, you didn't have to be particularly knowledgeable about football when you knew that the best club in the world was Barcelona and it was kind of it was almost seen as will any football club ever equal what they've achieved there um whereas as you say it was gutted uh and and the not just losing its stars but actually the the financial impact of this kind of incredible escalation of state level money after a period when football clubs had been run by maybe very wealthy individuals or, or you know, co- collectives of wealthy individuals. And we get on to this whole question of so-called financial fair play. But it seems pretty clear, uh, if you look across the sort of top tier of European football now, there are very few clubs left that are not owned by some major, probably authoritarian state or some huge uh, kind of uh, interest that goes beyond the the kind of traditional community style, you know, ownership of of football. Well, with a few kind of notable exceptions, two being two of the biggest Barcelona and Real Madrid, who are fan owned. Although now it, that doesn't mean fan ownership is a panacea because there are obviously a lot of questions about, say, Florentino Perez's running of Madrid and how he's almost essentially kind of um, he, he runs it in this very presidential manner and has his, and you know he's a, he's a billionaire himself. Um, but at least in theory, they're, they're well in, in, in very real terms, they are owned by the fans. It's just about how often the fans can express that power. Then, of course, we've got the German model, which is um, fifty. Plus, the fans will always have a fifty plus one veto. Uh, but yeah, but and it's interesting. I mean, I mean, one of the things we've been repeatedly told is that Abramovich wanted to buy the two Spanish clubs. Some of the Gulf states obviously wanted to buy the Spanish clubs, but they couldn't because they were ring fenced. In a way, that should that should be the case. I mean, this gets to the heart of it, I suppose. What are we all here for? What's football for? What are clubs for? Well, it is kind of just at heart uh, the playing of a game and a, and a kind of a, a cultural expression and a cultural pursuit uh, as a representation of communities. I mean, I, I, that's quite a good thing. It, 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 I think it's, um, it's something that's beneficial to society. And yeah. that aim is now being completely warped and twisted and the game being used in that sense and this was i mean following on from your question there about uh, or what you said there about kind of how the, the the financial makeup of the game is being changed i think that's where there are the two major issues i mean the first issue and sometimes i think that this gets a little bit lost in how just the, the phrase sports washing is just repeated all the time and i think sports washing again it's become one of those words it's now used so often it's actually starting to lose its meaning a bit and doesn't have that power but i suppose I mean, ultimately, the the biggest reason this is a problem, I think, is that it makes the sport complicit with a lot of elements that human rights groups say would criticise. Yeah. And connect connects football to that. Connect something that is supposed to be good to something that is usually problematic. And you can point to any number from, you know, the suppression of dissidents to migrant, um, the, 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 um, the, the circumstances 
of uh, migrant workers in the Gulf. Yeah. So many issues. And th- that should still be paramount. And that should really be reflected in every trophy they lift. Um, and then there's a second side of it, which is the effect on the game itself. And obviously that use of clubs, but also just how much is changing the sport. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, I, me- I mentioned how 2017 was probably the most influential, the most kind of game-changing summer in terms of expenditure after 2003 with Abramovich. Yeah. And that's because, I mean, Manchester City spent a lot that summer. They basically, they essentially bought half the team that, that Pep Guardiola would go on and dominate with. But also, uh, Paris Saint-Germain broke the transfer record that summer. They, they signed Neymar. And then, and then they followed it by signing Kylian Mbappe. And had to, they had to sign him on loan initially because of financial fair play rules, um, which I suppose illustrates a little bit of, of um, why there are ongoing questions about, about, about the rules. Uh, but but e- e- even within financial fair play, e- even if like even uh, say if the system works perfectly, th- th- these ownerships still pose a problem in that regard. Essentially, because they've got no financial risk, and and that's I think people overlook how powerful that can be, especially, especially even against. And I would have uh, almost as many issues with say kind of um, these capitalistic interests owning football clubs as, as Gulf states. But but there is still that kind of it's, it's almost that level beyond. I remember being told around that summer of um, that, uh, like, w- with the signing of Neymar, there were multiple mo- motivations. One was revenge against Barcelona because Barcelona had knocked out uh, Paris Saint Germain in really humiliating fashion in the Champions League. With like they overturned a four 0 deficit to win six one. Really traumatic night for what PSG were as a club. Two was signing one of the best players in the world and making a statement. But another part of it, you know, I've, I've been told by someone who worked within the deal, was. They knew that if Paris Saint-Germain knew if wages and transfer fees were raised to a certain level, fewer and fewer clubs would be able to compete. Yeah. And on the other side of that, in trying trying to compete, would actually end up weakening clubs. That's exactly what happened with Barcelona, who made a series of bad financial decisions after that, after that sale. And it's also what, why we have the football world as we do now, which is essentially like. And again, but this is what I said earlier about how so many current problems could have been addressed at the start of the millennium or just before the Abramovich takeover. So at that point, you probably had a Champions League. It had expanded, but there was still a kind of a vitality and variety to it. We are still in an era where a Ukrainian side like Dynamo Kiev could get to the semifinals, where if you played a good team from France, they gave you a really good game. Now we're in a situation where the, the, the top of the football world feels so small. It's the Premier League which has become the ultimate kind of, we, we'll take any ownership going. Well, I mean, they've got the owners and directors test, but everyone th- thinks it's a joke, really, with the, with the way uh, the Newcastle um, takeover was um, not, not quite waved through, but it did ultimately succeed. Um, and, and England has almost become this, or the Premier League has just become this greatest distillation of, the, of this issue of, of ownership, given the, the number of different ownerships involved. But it's also created this, uh, or it's gone hand in hand, I suppose, with the Premier League's massive growth as a competition, how it's become the dominant competition, and how much it earns from broadcasting. And because of all that together, it means we're from a world where you would have about 20 to 25 teams that were really competitive, or like a, a team like Lyon could give you a really good game in Europe. So now it is about, what, seven to eight clubs who come in the Champions League, four from England, four or five from England, the two from Spain, although I wouldn't say Barcelona, are in, uh, actually, the two from Spain are, who really remain the two biggest in the game, they're still in this ongoing adaptation 
to what football is now. Now, maybe sympathy for them maybe should only go so far, given that some of this is a world that these big clubs created through their own greed. Um, but even still, it, it's still not healthy to go beyond that. And I, I mean, football should really be looking to rein all this back in quite significantly. And, 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 and it's, it's one of the great, sorry, I'm going off on multiple tangents here, but I suppose they're all kind of interlinked. Yeah. It's one of the great ironies of football in that sense. I think like I mean, David Goldblatt, the football historian, and, and yeah, Tom Holland, the historian, said the same, that there is a strong argument now that football is the most popular cultural pursuit that's ever been seen in the history of the planet, beyond yeah. any religion, beyond any form of music. Because say like, People like Ronaldo and Messi are probably more famous across more borders than anyone else, maybe than, within popes or whatever. But, but again, actually, I think it goes beyond that. Yeah. And also we're in, a, we're in a point where it's beginning to really permeate in countries that previously would have had less interest in football. Like U- the US is the market they all want to conquer now. In, it's, it's massively popular in India. We've just seen what's happened with the Women's World Cup in Australia. Um, but that immense global popularity, it isn't really translating into kind of... Um, a kind of a stronger football at base. All it means is more concentration and consequently more resources for the biggest clubs in the game because people are mostly just interested in the, in, in the biggest names. That's what this massive global, uh, global popularity translates into. And it, it does make you wonder how, uh, at what point this becomes unsustainable or it starts to topple over or there's yeah. sort of um, a mass change. Yeah, and so I, I guess in a way that that takes us quite neatly to Saudi Arabia. Obviously, twenty twenty one they purchased Newcastle. Um, one of the extraordinary aspects of that was it, the purchase is made by the PIF Public Investment Fund, and the Premier League accepted that that was independent of the Saudi government, and that fund is run by the Saudi government with literally MBS Mohammed bin Salman at at the top of that. So. Um, could you say a bit about what you see Saudi, because uh, Saudi's so much bigger even than Qatar and UAE in terms of its resources. What is Saudi trying to do in football? Well, I, I think that's exactly, that's why we're in, I mean, I, I said earlier about how it feels like the playbook is um, improved upon at every stage. Yeah. Um, well, but I think they've added multiple new chapters and that we've now gone beyond just ownership of clubs or staging of tournaments. So obviously Saudi Arabia does want to host the World Cup and the, the politics around 2030 are quite interesting there, given they, they seem to have pulled out because they weren't guaranteed victory. Mm-hmm. But obviously, I mean, given what we've seen with Live Golf, given what we've seen this summer with the expansion of the Saudi Pro League, yes. it's difficult not to think this is going to end up, and someone in football said it to me, this will end up being a hostile takeover of the sport, or yeah. to a point where, and I, I, mean, I, I do have some conflicting feelings, about, or not conflicting feelings, more like I suppose there's, there's elements you should take together. I mean, Whatever about the structure of the Saudi state, it's obviously legitimate for Saudi Arabia to expand its own football infrastructure, to have a good team and a good... That's separate to what state is. But the specific problem here, I suppose, is how centralized the country is and how, unlike, say, even the Premier League or Syria, um, the, the, the Saudi Pro League has become a specific state project. And, that, and given the amount of money they're spending... And given the, I mean, the potential disruption to the sport, I think football is going to be upended in a way. Evidently, some of its most, um, some of its leading figures haven't. Even, I, I have to say, I'd be, and this speaks to the situation we're in, and football's general failure to regulate itself or anticipate problems. I have huge concerns about some of the comments that um, 
people like the UEFA president Alexander Sheffern have said they don't see Saudi Arabia as a threat. I think that's extremely complacent thinking. I mean, so obviously, given given all of its goals in terms of be they diver- economic diversification, be they the image of the country uh, or kind of um, um, reputation projection, although they're all connected, of course. One of the initial goals, and, and this has been widely reported now, they wanted to get into the Champions or Saudi Arabia would have wanted to get into the Champions League yeah. because the, cha- the Champions League, even more so than the World Cup, is where it's at. Because season by season, the, the clubs have this, or the big clubs have this kind of control over um, you know, social media or, or people's minds or the public, the public consciousness in a way even the, the World Cup doesn't until it happens. So they would have wanted into that. UEFA, at present, the stance is to completely reject that. And obviously it would go against FIFA, FIFA statutes. But I do, I do wonder then whether there'll be a shift because while the Champions League has all this power, something FIFA have been trying to do for years, and th- again, this comes into kind of an on, like what is a long-term conflict between UEFA and FIFA, the, the European Federation and the Global Federation. FIFA wants its own club competition because the Champions League makes so much money and it, it means yeah. so much power. FIFA, so they want to expand the Club World Cup. They're doing that in 2025, so it'll be a 32-team competition in America as a kind of preparation for the um, the main World Cup, and that's going to be the new pattern now. That this massive Club World Cup will always be in the in the country the next World Cup is headed, held in the year before. Right, uh, and there's going to be huge financial incentives um, to try and get the major clubs on board. And what's going to happen, I suppose, is the Saudi Arabian clubs will aim. For the Club World Cup, so that can become their Champions League, and then suddenly, I mean, and it did, did like a, a lot of people in football are concerned about what this is supposed to kind of the framework of the sport. If we're in a situation, say, and it, like initially when, when, when this was when this first came up about four years ago, it was just before COVID. It was expected SoftBank would provide a lot of the funding, and obviously SoftBank have their own Saudi links. Uh, it would provide a lot of the funding for this Club World Cup, and so there was all sort of talk that any team that played would get eighty million. But what does that do to kind of the, the structure? Say if, if, if Boca Juniors are ever played, the two big Argentine clubs who are desperate for this sort of uh, opportunity, if, if, if they play in this Club World Cup and get that prize money, well, that renders Argent, Argentine football like a joke for the next decade because they've got so much more money than everyone else. It just completely changes the sport. And then if we are in a situation where this kind of, this is an ongoing thing and, and the, the, the 32 club World Cup 32-team Club World Cup really expands. That's actually then, that's competitor to the Champions League in that sense. And the, I mean, again, I'm sorry, it's another tangent, but again, it's part of it. There's this ongoing debate in football now over whether federations like UEFA and FIFA, they have, they, have, they have too many responsibilities and which leads to potential conflicts of interest. So they're supposed to regulate what's good for the sport. But at the same time, they're actually, through their competitions, they're in competition with each, with each, with each other. Yeah, because you know FIFA want their own Champions League, um, and then like you, you, there are questions over if, if if you're making decisions on what will bring in the most money for competition, is that really in the health? Is are they really decisions that also serve the health of the sport? And because of all this, all overlaps so much. Football is in for for all that this global health or this global popularity, it's in such a mess right now, and hence it's so prone to um, are, are, are so susceptible. To these influences, not least because essentially everyone has their, you know, everyone's looking for where the, the next big investment is coming from. Yeah. It's a sport, it's always been dictated by money, but that's gone to, I think, unimaginable levels now. To the point, I mean, 
I suppose this this speaks into kind of football's why it's so popular and that, that universality to it. Because it used to be said like it, it was just the it always had the perfect balance where while the better team usually won, it was unpredictable enough and low scoring enough that there were always upsets. Yeah. Or, and this is this is translated saying a penalty, um, which which had a seventy thirty chance of scoring, and now that actual unpredictability is tangibly and this is illustrated in all sorts of statistics now it's being affected by the influence of money and as we've seen and as as we've been discussing which is i suppose in terms of the kind of that line with the hostile takeover and this is where i suppose we the, the saudi influence go into all sorts of areas we'll say what happens if they continue to spend so much money on european players uh, and that continues to destroy like to, to really affect, especially because it's been interesting that the Premier League already had the most power and the Premier League is actually the league that has received the most money in terms of transfer fees from Saudi Arabia. When that further starts to distort the sport, does UEFA ever get into a point where you have to do business with Saudi Arabia in the way golf did? Last summer, as the uh, the live golf thing was really accelerating in summer 2022, I found myself uh, in an airport with, so, with someone prominent from a, a, a national federation. And we were just discussing it all. And they quite mournfully said, the issue you've got with it, I mean, ultimately, if it comes down to pure financial fight, be it in terms of what you can spend or even what you can spend on legal fees, you can't win. So you eventually have to do business with them. And that, that, that's something that's been, been I suppose, replayed. And it, it does point to, I suppose, bigger issues like whether sport, given its cultural importance, should be more protected by institutions. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose then that what's really interesting about the Saudi case and, and sets it apart from the, the, the UAE and Qatar is this this pro league, those are their own domestic league. And of course, these as as you as you noted, these these clubs are owned by the PIF. So they're not even, you know, they, they, they don't represent any kind of local sort of fan base or something like that. Um, and, and we've in addition to all the money that's gone into Newcastle, we've seen, uh, you know, globally significant players head to Saudi Arabia. But one of the oddities of this, and it, and it comes back to this thing of the Champions League, is that, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on the game itself, but people who are aren't very impressed with what's actually happening. And it's some bits to do with the climate and to do with the conditions that people play in. It's, it, is, it, is it plausible that, that you will be able to create, um, you know, globally standard, high, highest standard um, football on on the Saudi soil, as it were. I mean, the I suppose the explaining factor in the entire history of football now is that money eventually wins out. Yeah, uh, and if you invest enough, I suppose they 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 can um, it can bring evolution. And I mean, even from that perspective, to, to go back, I suppose when like 
when Manchester City say we're bored or when Paris Saint-Germain were bored, there was still this feeling in the game that, oh, they'll never, they'll never have the legacy of the big clubs. So yeah. they'll, they'll never be true competitors. They'll only, they'll only be able to sign mercenaries. But ultimately, if you, if you keep throwing money at it, it's gradually, and then even if you do initially bring players who are only interested in the money, well, the very fact they're there will improve the level and suddenly they're competing for trophies and that's exactly what's happened. I think similar with, with um, Saudi Arabia and if that they, I suppose, keep throwing money at it um, and, I mean, and it's interesting that the example of China has repeatedly come up in the context of Saudi Arabia because China was the, was the first to do this or to try something similar around 2016-17 where they spent a fortune and that was, that was talked about in similar terms and we had players going over um, but it wasn't matched with expenditure and infrastructure and it very quickly kind of just um, for, for a variety of factors uh, fell apart. Um, the, the, the feeling is so one of the most interesting things. And if you talk to kind of people around football, so in the last few months, say in April, which is the first time I think I really got inkling something was happening. Saudi Arabia at that point was at a part the Saudi Arabian football infrastructure was at a point they're inviting virtually any key figure you can think of over to Saudi Arabia for consultation, specifically agents or people who people who work in kind of in the infrastructure game to talk about what they need to do. Um, so at the moment, at least, I think there is that kind of the expenditure on players is offset by an attempt to improve infrastructure. It's still, I mean, even you can throw as much money as you want, it still does take time and patience, which I suppose this is where kind of bigger um, bigger political teams come in that will that patience be sustained? Is it entirely dependent on the whims of MBS uh, or I mean, any sort of kind of geopolitical change? Um, but I suppose at the very least, I suppose it is, it's, it's, it's feasible that they could create something that is a football powerhouse. It just, it's still going to take a lot of work. And, and from speaking to people who have been working over there and they were saying that they, they uh, apparently the, the Saudi football infrastructure, the people in it involved, they do reasonably think it can supplant Syria and um, and Ligue 1, say the, the French and Italian competitions, as the next level down after the Premier League. Uh, but that won't happen quickly. Yeah. So the um, you you mentioned earlier th- this thing about how um, the 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 money coming into the sport kind of reduces the unpredictability and of course that's you know it's not it's not called the beautiful game for nothing this idea that you know a minnow team can win the world uh, can win the fa cup or or can you know can, can um even i suppose you could argue you know leicester winning the, the premier league that year you know that that was that was perhaps the, the last time that that a sort of a, a, a bit of a kind of outside team managed to do something like that um but uh, over the longer run uh it, it feels as if 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 this kind of deadening influence of of global money and kind of geopolitical strategy is what's driving the game uh will people perhaps lose interest in it i mean does it does it stop being the most popular cultural uh, sort of phenomenon in human history this is something I have to say I've been increasingly thinking about. Um, because you do wonder how sustained, especially, I mean, we're in a situation where Manchester City, uh, funny, just, just before I came on, I was on a call and they said this exact thing where it's, um, I can't remember, even, even with Pep Guardiola's Barcelona, about this massive cultural imprint because of what they were, and they're obviously the best team in the world. They still weren't as heavy favourites to win the Champions League as Manchester City are this season. We're in a situation where City, when they win the title, I think the average is something like 95 points. So like, so like, even this is unprecedented. Where say Arsenal played Tottenham at the weekend, uh, and 
in the last 20 minutes of that game, there was huge pressure because even though it's September, there was already, if Arsenal drop points here, their title challenge is over because City won't, won't drop more than 20 points. And that, 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 that's just not, that's not healthy. And I, I, again, I suppose we, we come back here to kind of, you know, philosophical debates about sporting excellence and all that. But um, I mean, really, I mean, what, what makes sport is actually fallibility because that creates drama, that kind of reveals character comebacks. And if, if we are to have this perfection, you want it to be at the end of a journey or because of kind of some sort of kind of um, uh, transcendent ability that you would see in someone like Leo Messi, not as the product of a political project. Uh, that, I think that's quite depressing, really. And you, you do wonder, I mean, I suppose these, two, these things do take time for full effects to be seen, uh, but it can happen. Things that yeah. were usually popular ones, suddenly things can just die. Um, then, then, look, look at kind of the, the history of, of sport itself in that sense, and even the way football has has taken. I, I, like, I actually think we're in a situation where, and even though my sport, my mm. only sport has ever really been football, I think it's very unhealthy that football now cannibalizes everything else. Um, and, I, and I suppose it, it, it's it's. I, I mentioned the kind of the, the rise of kind of the internet in that sense earlier, being key to this, but I, I, I think that is crucial in the sense that I suppose. Now, any sort, any sort of media company in the world can see what, what people click on. Whereas before, say, if you were reading your Sunday newspaper, the media would just present you interesting things to read. Which often meant like you, you, you find yourself reading about golf, rugby, whatever. Whereas now, media will naturally respond to what people are interested in. And, and that kind of creates this cascading effect. Kind of, and it's, it, it echoes the kind of financial cycle in football. What, what kind of, funny enough, City's CEO from Barcelona, Ferran Soriano, called the virtuous cycle. Yeah. Except it's created this quite destructive cycle for the game, which is narrowing the potential competitors. And if that, con- if that continues, you, you do wonder whether, maybe not that the bubble will burst, but there will be some kind of splintering. And I think that, that's where obviously the Super League was very interesting. That, that was the first step in this. The Super League was a direct response to uh, state ownership in that the kind of the old legacy clubs realized they didn't have a control of this. Uh, they didn't think the football was regulating it particularly well. So they tried to, I suppose, to a certain degree, co-opt the state-owned club because like Man City were invited, Paris Saint-Germain were invited or, who rejected, or rejected it. Um, and, and it failed. Uh, it, it's good that it failed given what it was. But I, one of the issues I have from that is the Super League failure has now created this resistance to any change in football, which means the game further trundles along to some sort of worrying uh, horizon when it does actually need significant overhaul. Um, and, and, and I wonder if that, but even like I mentioned Paris Saint-Germain there, this is what I meant to say with kind of the response to leadership. I mean, look at the situation we're in the sense of, through, through the ownership of Paris Saint-Germain, Nasser Al-Khalafi, who's very close to the Emir of Qatar, he has also become, well, he, first of all, he's also the head of B in sports. Um, and so the, the Spanish league president, Javier Tebas, is, is one of the few people who's repeatedly called out Nasser's uh, conflict of interest in this way. But then through that, he's also become the head of the European Club Association, who is the most influential lobby group for the major clubs and, and really influential with UEFA. So then we have a situation where basically, obviously, when Sheffern has to kind of make decisions on, say, multi-club ownership, so whether the, like, you can have this, and this is a, there was a, briefly the, the possibility that, say, Qatar would own both Manchester United and Paris Saint-Germain and play in the competition, or issues like, say, what the response to Saudi Arabia will be. Well, th- that comes from consultations with Nasser, who is you know, a, a, an influential figure in Qatar. And again, it's supposed to come to almost kind of the appropriation of institutions that through the purchase of a football club, they've managed to kind of um, bounce that into, into power in these sort of institutions. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think it's, it's quite notable the way that during the Newcastle acquisition, it's very clear that you know, Boris Johnson, who was prime minister at the time, was, was very, very much part of 
a, a kind of tendency to say this is all fine let's wave it through you know let, let, let's not worry about the details um but I, I wanted to i suppose sort of to finish with with uh, just sort of examining the kind of durability of this stuff, because what you've described there very eloquently in the Qatar case, and perhaps we see it with other with other other state-backed entities, is is the way in which these institutions, institutions like European football or, or or British football, are being taken over by foreign money, by authoritarian state money. But and you know, for example, the Saudi football plan is part of this big. 2030 vision it's about diversification they want to become a post-oil economy but no one seriously thinks that football is going to replace the oil industry you know so saudi arabia without the oil industry is is still in a very tight spot so there is this question when you look at football clubs um most of the the great sort of european football clubs are about 100 years old sometimes more than that um and if you're looking over the next 25 years actually the gulf countries have got some very difficult questions to answer we're going through an energy transition at the moment uh th there'll be a time when these countries don't have an oil economy um and it does seem hard to believe that they'll have billions to spare to spend on football at that stage so i wonder where that that leaves us uh, I, I think and it's interesting from speaking to more and more people around this i think there's a very big concern that is actually being Overlooked to a surprising degree, all the more, and it's all the more surprising, given we've ju we've just seen what happened with, say, the aftermath of the initial invasion of Ukraine, and say, I mean, I think it's underappreciated how close Chelsea came to going out of business. Right. So, say if, if suddenly, if, e even before you get as far as that, say, if geopolitics suddenly shifts, and then suddenly, you know, we see a similar situation to what happens with Russia, but then suddenly, some clubs might be on the track. And again, the game is buttressed by so much of this money. If that's just pulled away, and it does point to how like the game, rather than kind of inviting such interest in, should be kind of aiming for its own sustainability, which I mean, it should be a very logical, obvious thing. Given as we say, we are talking about it as the most popular pursuit. It doesn't need these interests to make money. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's that's a significant. And yeah, even if it doesn't get to that, but it goes on further. I mean, you would have thought. I mean, to my mind, like yeah. I, 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 I don't think they're in football to actually make money. I think it's more the it's the social and political power of football that complements their other business interests. Uh, I think it was Adam Kugel of um, of uh, Human Rights Watch to put it to me like that three years ago when, when Newcastle first tried to buy Saudi Arabia. Said, well, I mean, I, in very in very kind of crude terms, it's basically about these guys are good to do business. Well, they own a football club. This is this is it, it, it does help that, and obviously it brings greater exposure. Um, but I mean, even as, as regards that question of kind of what next and kind of whether football will burst, because again, it kind of interconnects in this sense. And that whole question of Manchester City's popularity is quite, or sorry, sorry Manchester City's success, I think is quite central to that. I mean, I remember speaking to someone recently about this who was saying that there, there has been surprise within Abu Dhabi that the response to Manchester City hasn't been celebration at, at this amazing team. It's been more about kind of like questions and resistance about well, what's actually happening to the sport, um, and uh, there isn't that. And, I, and it's interesting actually in that perspective as well that one of the figures they appointed I mentioned there a few moments ago, Ferran Soriano, um, that uh, he was the chief executive of Barcelona. That may, this was almost maybe a, a moment of kind of whatever about appointing him for his um, his football outlook or his business stra strategy. Maybe, maybe kind of unintentionally that um, 
a outlooks uh, aligned because Ferran Soriano, you can buy his book, um, which is the ball. I think it's called the ball doesn't go in by chance. So it's downloadable on Kindle. And he, in that book, he talks about when he was chief executive of Barcelona, he did not care about other clubs, about kind of the welfare of the Sevillas or whatever. He was he was caring about the, the furthering of his own club. But but, it, but football is inherently based on competition. That's what it is. It's okay. It's it, it's competitive, but that competitiveness is based on partnerships. Which again, people point to this kind of irony all the time uh, that America, the the the, the, um, the most capitalistic country in the world, in that sense, its actual its sporting model is very socialist. And what the effect of that have been actually, again, another irony is that so many U.S. business interests are not looking to their own sports, but they're looking to football to potentially make money because that is currently a free for all. And the effects of all this, I mean, with both. So the way I would see it now, there's there's three main forces driving football. One is the politics of the Gulf. A second is a very this very Western form of capitalism, predominantly coming from the from U.S. interests. And a third is football's inability to regulate itself or have any sort of foresight. I mean, none of the major federations have think tanks considering where the game is going. And at the very least, you would say the first two of those interests have absolutely no concern for what the sport looks like or its health. And the third doesn't think about it anywhere near as much as it should. Well, that's, um, that kind of summary is, uh, is, is, is fairly kind of thought-provoking. I suppose my, my final sort of brief question is, um, does that explain then the kind of, at the other end of the scale, the sort of the romantic clubs, and obviously most famously Wrexham, with with the kind of Hollywood stars buying in, and and you watch Wrexham not because you think they're going to win the FA Cup, but just because you love the story, or you know Forest Green with the sort of you know the carbon zero, you know Dale Vince, who's a kind of eco activist, is is in a way is it people are turning away from some of these mega clubs because actually the stories aren't interesting. Well, I, there's a very interesting thing there as well, I have to say, and, and and this is maybe where there's one cause for hope. Now, the first thing I should say, actually, maybe, maybe this is maybe where my own kind of my personal um, puritanical approach to football maybe goes a bit further, but uh, I, w- I would actually see the Wrexham thing as an extension of what's happening with, say, US uh, capitalistic interests. And I think, and I've heard so many stories now that having seen what what's happened at Wrexham, so many US movies, like half of Hollywood is on to kind of these people who work in kind of takeovers because, and I don't want kind of big, I'll give you like one of the stories I was told, like someone going to someone who works and saying, oh, I want to, I want a club lower down with a funny name. Sorry for doing that. <laughs> I shouldn't have that. <laughs> but, 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 but again, I, my issue there more so, it's almost kind of the, the attempted use of what football is for other purposes. And okay, yes, Wrexham have obviously benefited. But then Wrexham benefited in a situation where it's also kind of upended the, the economic structure, say, of the lower leagues. But, yeah. but, but, but that's, uh, that's separate to the point I was going to make, which is, which is where there is hope. I mean, I was talking to someone in, in uh, politics about this exact topic, and they were pointing to how without, with any, any kind of um, force like this or kind of paradigm like this, there is always inevitably some sort of bigger response. So say in America, the actual response to kind of Trumpian populism has been Biden's economic act, which is something that was, would have been, for the last 40 years has been completely unimaginable. And it is possible in football, as you say, we will see um, a, a response that is more based around the core of the sport. And I think there are shoots of this. So Ireland is actually an interesting town, and as you can tell from the accent, I'm, I'm half Irish in group there. Um, 
Ireland's an interesting case in that Ireland was actually a kind of, um, it foreshadowed so much of this in that the, the, the Irish League used to have very big attendances until the late 1960s. And what happened in the late 1960s? Match of the day came on television. Suddenly you could see this better form of football across the water every week and uh, attendances declined. And that's happened around the world. Whereas now, uh, attendances at, at the League of Ireland are actually improving because it's seen, I think there's an element of it's, it's kind of almost a pure form of football. In Sweden, they've gone a complete other direction. They re, they've, they've followed the German model and it's created a boom in attendances, even though the Swedish national team is struggling, the team's performances, because of this kind of attempt at, at parity, they're not doing so well in Europe, but people love the culture around it. Uh, sim- there's a similar movement in Norway, there's real against modern football movement in Europe, or in Norway, which may be all the more kind of surprising ironic, given that Erling Haaland, is, they, they finally have this global star, and who's he a star for? Manchester City. <laughs> um, but, I, but, I, but I do think that also follows from, Norway was obviously one of the most vocal countries um, or one of the most vocal football cultures against the Qatar World Cup. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think there are at least promising shoots in that sense. About, and again, people who will try and, you know, br- bring the game back to um, to what it should look like, which is kind of... And, and, and again, it's that line I said earlier about kind of how football is, is cannibalizing all other sports, but it's also cannibalizing itself. I mean, I find it... I mean, again, it kind of comes back to, I suppose, this maybe kind of purism about it all. But like when I was growing up and you get first interested, one of the great things about being interested in football was the, the, the colour of the game, the variety to it. And kind of like I used to have the Sabutio scoreboard, which had the teams from all over the world, names from all over the world. Then as you grow up and you kind of see these games, and again, as I say, an English team could go to Poland or, or, or Ukraine or, or what used to be Yugoslavia or Croatia um, and have a proper game. And that's something that it's obviously a healthier thing if more of the talent is spread around the game rather than just kind of this this center at the top, which is so influenced by these, you know, these interests hoovering up everything at the at the expense of everything else. Um, and so I think that there will be a, a growing resistance to that. But funny, it has worked on this more and more over the past few years. My mind keeps going back to that documentary, uh, the corporation which made the point that, I suppose, even within the current economic structure, even if people within that are aware of all the issues and want to change, it's just impossible because of of that infrastructure. And I'm beginning to feel similar about football, which you can see, and I suppose a lot of good people in it are going to end up being chewed out. But again, hopefully, that gradually brings a response. And actually, because I should make this point, because it is, I think, central to everything we talked about. I think that the... Manchester City financial fair play case could be very interesting as regards what's next. And I, I, this is a story that I suppose sums up a lot. I mean, uh, first of all, even uh, pe- people would say about it, it's kind of, it maybe it, it reflects maybe a certain tension between when these states have interest and, and a game that tries to govern itself, not least in the way so many people around Manchester City say think the, the financial fair play rules aren't fit for a purpose or they were designed by the big clubs to kind of limit the impact of anyone else. And there might even be a certain amount of merit in that argument. That said, they signed up to the rules and now they've been charged for potential violation of the rules. Now, at the moment, the Premier League has huge pressures here. And, some that, and this is going on for about five years now. Given what's in the public domain, First of all, sorry, the first pressure is obviously from Manchester City itself, who will fight this at every turn, all sorts of legal challenges. Um, 
it was similar with the UEFA case. Then on the other side of that, there's the quote-unquote other 18, the, uh, the 18 Premier League clubs who aren't owned by a state or state-linked bodies. And they, from what's in the public domain, they are convinced that Manchester City should be punished. And they don't want punishment, they want the severest punishment. And they don't like the way the game is going in that sense. Uh, and it's why if the Premier League could be in a potential bind there, say if, if City are found guilty at the end of this, the, the punishment the other clubs will want might be right up to expulsion. But then what happens then? So the Premier League either, if say, if the punishment is too heavy, uh, City will come back. If it's too lenient, the other clubs will be really irritated. And then we could have a potential split in the Premier League that could lead us into all other areas. But if it is too heavy, is that a diplomatic incident? Yeah. Like, I mean, that, that, that's the level we're talking about. Um, I mean, it definitely would be, I think. And, and, and you could expect, just as it's clear that there was uh, a lot of diplomatic sort of goings on in the Newcastle purchase, you know, that the, the relationship between Abu Dhabi and London is a very strong one and, and clearly wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be, be unaffected by something of that scale. Yeah, completely. And, and again, it points to why football should be... Football... I mean, there are sometimes moments we talk about this and where you kind of suddenly have these just that realization. But on a very base level, a sport like football just shouldn't be confronted with these sort of questions. It shouldn't be protected from these interests. We shouldn't have, and again, like we, we didn't even get to issues like, I suppose, what it does to kind of fan groups and how it toxifies kind of public discussion. Uh, but, and even that's obviously been quite kind of a negative development. Again, fans just shouldn't have to be confronted with debates where, they, the success of their team is questioned because they're owned by a state. Like they, they, it shouldn't have happened in the first place, but um, that's where we are. And it's quite a tricky place where the, the most popular cultural pursuit has ever been. Indeed. Well, um, Miguel, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, people can follow your work where? T tell the listeners where they can find you. Uh, so I am um, a chief football writer at The Independent. Uh, so... Uh, you can follow me on the independent website. And also, uh, despite Elon Musk, um, you, we are most active on Twitter X, so I'm there on Miguel Delaney. Fantastic. Thank you for joining me. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Lines. If you're not yet a subscriber to this podcast, please consider becoming one by whichever platform you use to listen. It won't cost you anything, and it means you won't miss a single episode. And if you've enjoyed it, please give us a good review and spread the word. I'll see you next time. Behind the Lines with Arthur Snell has been a Vinyl Street production. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.